Edutainment Learning is powered by Academica Virtual Education and Collegia TV. For more information, visit www.edutainmentlearning.com. So my name is Mylene Salavarria, and I was born and raised in Cuba. I have been in the United States for 22 years now. So I want to um, start by um, saying thank you for the invitation, giving me the opportunity to um, speak to all the students about who I am, uh, why I'm here, and you know the kind of like life stories that I have to tell you guys is all. So my name is Mylene Salavarria, as I said before. I was born and raised in Cuba. I have been in uh, the, the United States for 22 years. And today I'm speaking to you from Denver, Colorado in the Rocky Mountains foothills. Um, in these presentations, when I introduce myself, I usually like to say that I was born in Cuba, but made in the US. And like most Americans, I do enjoy life, simple comforts. I, thanks God, do not go to bed every night hungry. I do not go to bed feeling cold or living out in the elements. And I don't go to bed afraid or scared for my life. But that was not always the case. Um, like I said before, on Mother's Day of uh, January, uh, no, on Mother's Day of 2021, 20, uh, 2001, gosh, I need to check the math because I can't believe it's been so long now. Um, I was 27 years old, and that's when I fled a Fidel Castro's communist Cuba, seeking the freedom that the United States have to offer me and a new future for my life and for my future family. So I would like to tell you right now how all that started. And for that purpose, I want everybody that is connected to the conversation today for a few minutes, and trust me on this one, I want you to close your eyes, imagine that you are in a huge auditorium, the lights are gonna be dim and everybody is gonna go silent in the audience. With your eyes closed, I want you to imagine that you are on my shoes when I am telling you this story. Imagine that you're walking through a long hallway at Miami International Airport. Your hands are trembling. You're trying not to panic, but you know that you're about to speak to a stranger in a language that is not yours about a choice that you just made. And you know and imagine in the back of your head that this perfect stranger pretty much holds the future of your entire life in his hands. I want you to imagine, and I want you to walk with me what happened on Mother's Day of 2001 when I first landed in the United States. As I was walking to these long hallways, you know how mother airports are nowadays. You can imagine the tile floors, bright white, bright lights everywhere, the signs, the banners. And you're walking towards a customs office, officer's booth in this place that you have never been before. You have a few people with you. You're carrying two bags. Imagine that you're carrying your entire life in two suitcases and you have $200 in your pocket. In the other pocket of your jeans, what you have is a crumble old paper, official one, looks like an official form, written in this language that happens to be your first. I walked toward this booth at Miami International Airport that day. I remember getting out of the back pockets of my jeans this, you know, crumble paper that I was telling you before. We have that happens to be my Cuban birth certificate. I was the only person in that group that spoke some broken English. And with that 
heavier accent, um, nervous like none of you can imagine. And I extended that um, birth certificate under the little glass booth that you have in those desks. And I told the person, I am Cuban and I am requesting the protection of the United States government. Now I want you all to open your eyes and fast forward to a couple of years ago when this same person that I just described to you walking to Miami International Avery Immigration and Customs Office booth was traveling abroad outside the United States and was coming back from set trip. This person walked through the hallways at Denver International Airport like bus. It went through a very similar hallway. It had to go through a very similar customs and immigration booth, show her American passport, and guess what was the response or the first words that were spoken this time. This person on the other, on the other side of the glass simply say, welcome back home, Mrs. Salavarria. That was me, like in 20 years spent difference, going through a very similar experience. And that moment that I described to you when I came back from this foreign trip uh, through Denver International Airport, it was the first time in my life that I truly felt the results of the biggest personal choice that I have ever made. And that's what I would like to focus in my conversation with you all today. Um, how the difference in those experiences are why I'm so passionate about sharing with young Americans like you the importance of not taking the freedom that you have for granted. Why is it important to preserve the American way of life, the American dream, and the opportunities that we have in this country? Because many, many people around the world, including myself 22 years ago, we never had that choice. I never had it before. I came to the United States and there are countless human beings around us in the world that don't have it either. So I never want you or your children or your children's children to be in the same desperate, uh, desperate and terrified situation that I was in that moment that I described to you 22 years ago, when you approach a customs and immigration officer in another country, carrying your entire life in two suitcases. Why is this important? Because here in America, in the United States today, this is like the, the country and the society that you all have been born, is the one that I have been living for 22 years, is the one where my own children were born too. We are still free to choose things like our education, our career path. We still have freedom of speech. Uh, we still have a freedom to, uh, you know, open business. We have the freedom and the constitutionally protected right to our uh, property, our life, our body, and our right to pursue happiness. I want you to think about in places like Cuba, where I, where I was born and where I come from, the reality for the last 62 years, the reality today, as we're all connected in this modern world of remote presentations and meetings, the ruling party in places like Cuba still chooses those things for you. Whether you provide your informed consent or not, in Cuba, the ruling party and the government chooses how you live and you don't have a voice on it. American students, uh, nowadays, for example, you have choices to decide once that you graduate, where do you go to college, if you want to go to college, 
if you want to take a gap year, if you want to open your business, if you want to go ahead and take the risk to launch a, start a startup business, if you want to pursue any other career, you have choices and you still have the freedom to choose your, your future path. Grant a good grace and individual merit, improve your choices and the whole pool of options where you can pick from. In Cuba, for example, the students do not get to consent or to choose the extent of their schooling or whether they become a farmer, a doctor or anything else. These choices are forced upon them by the government using the force that only the state have. In my case, for example, I wanted to be a journalist or, or a lawyer, but the government assigned me to study agriculture engineer, albeit me being you know, one of the top graduates in my high school class. Uh, granted, I see absolutely nothing wrong with being, you know, an agricultural engineer, but it was not my choice as a professional career when I finished high school. In Cuba, for example, people are, are often given no other choice than to denounce their own relative friends and neighbors. Uh, the only choice for them is to confirm your relative friend or neighbor is a counter-revolutionary or whether it supports the Communist Party, doesn't speak ill about Fidel Castro and other leaders, or you will lose your job and starve. In Cuba, students are bullied into reporting their teachers who present in the classroom anything that is other than what is government approved or approved by the Communist Party. I mean, it always has to be told in that line. There is no freedom or space to healthy debate, to uh, have a you know, reasonable conversations um, and debates and discussions about opposing point of view while still respecting the person that is on the other side. And then when that happens, it's like this constant bias snitching reporting systems when both students, staff and teachers may as well come to school the next day just to learn that their teacher disappeared, that it was denounced as being counter-revolutionary or not told in the line of the Communist Party, and you never hear of that person again. This same scenario happens with your family, with your neighbors, uh, with your classmates, and it's, it's all this mentality and society that have been built into politically driven reporting systems against your own friends, your own classmates, your families, your neighbors. That was my reality. That was the life uh, of me in Cuba when I was your age, when I was in middle school, when I was in high school. I am that generation that grew up, for example, um, I was bat baptized in Cuba because if anybody in the, in the neighborhood uh, reporting groups or at my parents' uh, places of employment would learn about that, uh, they would have been fired. I am the generation of Cuban that grew up seeing my grandmother hiding her Bible and, and her images of God and Christ inside a closet because the only thing that you were allowed to display in the walls of your living rooms were the pictures of Fidel Castro, the pictures of Lenin, or the, picture, the pictures of Che Guevara. I am, I am that, that generation of Cuba that we usually call that we grew up and, and we became adults while Cuba was a satellite colony of the Soviet Union. I am, in, in my case, we, we come from very, uh, you know, humble upbringings. I, I was not the child of like any high government rank ministry or military or anybody in the government. I was raised with my three other cousins. We, we were raised together in a small towns in Cuba, moved quite a little bit, but again, very humble uh, uh, 
upbringings. My mom and my aunt were just simply office assistants, workers. My dad and my uncle used to work in construction companies. So like we always say, you know, like in a joking uh, mode, if you think, is that we were just, you know, the kids of my mom and my dad. We didn't have any privilege or anything like that. Uh, but in our case, we were fortunate that even in those humble upbringings in a in a totalitarian society like like Cuba was back then, Fidel Castro was still alive, and it's still a totalitarian society today. We always were educated in our family about the importance of education, the important about learning, because uh, it was like this mentality that whatever you learn, whatever knowledge you can get. Nobody can take that away from you. And, and my own life experience is, is a clear example. Whatever you learn, whether it's in school, whether it's languages or any other subject, is something that you're going to have in your, know, in your uh, knowledge base forever, no matter where you are. And there is no... There is no political police, there is no totalitarian government, there is no human being that will ever be able to take that away from you. So I want to go a little bit more into the reality of when I was your age, still living in Cuba. Like I said, uh, we were, you know, like a very um, humble working family. Most of the time in Havana, we used to live in the neighborhoods on the east side of Havana, where you see like the typical like Russian and communist Germany style boxy concrete uh, buildings that you're probably uh, be able to see in the background of the slideshows uh, right now. Um, but again, the the focus of the way that we were raised was always into education and hard work and personal responsibility and, and making a path for yourself, no matter what were the obstacles. That picture that you're seeing, that that's me on um, first grade. Uh, obviously, you have to wear the uniform. You have to wear the, the, the neckerchief around um, your neck. You always have to plead alliance to the Communist Party. You have to, you know, plead alliance to the great leaders of the Cuban government and whatnot. Um, and you can go ahead and, and keep uh, moving the, uh, the slides if you want. Just to give you another example, this is Alamar. This is the uh, neighborhood east of Havana, the working neighborhood that I was telling you about. These ruins that you see here, uh, the picture was taken about two years ago. This is the pool where I used to practice a swing team when I was in middle school. This is how it looks uh, right now. Uh, this is again another, another graphic uh, uh, evidence of the huge failure of totalitarian governments and centralized economy. This is what it does to an average Cuban daily life. Um, based on that, I, uh, but this is the neighborhoods that I was telling you about. This is the type of building that I uh, grew up with. It's, um, you know, that, that was my life and, and the neighborhood and the area and the schools where, where we grew up on. Um, and in in this, when I think about, you know, the, the years that, that I spent living in Cuba, I was obviously a young adult. Uh, when I left, and I was thinking, how can I explain to students like the contrast between the reality of what was my life when I was in middle school and high school, as opposed to how is it yours here in the United States? And I had a, I had a great, I had a really, really good example. Um, 
like I was telling you before, um, when I was in Cuba, it was those years when Fidel Castro was still uh, alive. I mean, the, the communist countries in Europe had not collapsed yet. So Cuba was pretty much a satellite colony of the, uh, the Soviet Union. So if my family, for example, was fortunate enough to have toothpaste given to them in the monthly uh, ration of food, it was only Russian toothpaste. So next time that you are at the grocery store, I want you to practice this exercise. I want you to walk into the toothpaste aisle or maybe the drawer aisle, I don't know, pick, pick your favorite thing. And I encourage you to stand in the middle of it and just look from left to right and from right to left and look at all the choices that you have to pick from, only in toothpaste. And let me tell you, I promise you that when you do that and you think about all these stories that I'm telling you, I promise you it will bring your notion of consent and freedom to choose to a whole different level. Um, another example, of when I was in middle school and high school in Cuba, we were forced to learn Russian as our second language in middle and high school, because again, that was the time where pretty much the high elite of the Soviet Union was ruling Fidel Castro was ruling Cuba. I was forced to work for free in the fields in the, in the summer times in Cuba with no pay, because it was this concept that it was voluntary work to build a new society, but the voluntary part of the work was a lie because you were forced to do it. And if you don't do it, you will get in trouble or you will, you will get in trouble with the political police in the neighborhood or you could even be expelled from, from school. Like I told you before the examples of how I grew up, um, you know, doing this daily pledge of alliance to the modern psychopath called Che Guevara, which so many people around the world today uh, feel that he's a hero. And it's, it's one of the most murderous person that you can ever find in the history of, of Cuba after 1959. I was in Cuba when the Maria Bolit happened. You guys is obviously were probably not even born. I was like five, six years old. This was in 19, 1980. Um, I grew up and I, I remember clearly being pulled out of my, my neighborhood and my kindergarten class to do this, uh, um, uh, this uh, protest against people that were seeking uh, asylum to leave Cuba and come to the, the United States. I remember the mobs, you know, brown shirt mobs type of people throwing eggs at their, at their doors in their houses, kicking them on the streets, calling them traitors and worms and, you know, all the insults in the world, simply because they dare, they dare to make the choice to leave the socialist misery that Fidel Castro had imposed in Cuba by then. I was in Cuba when the 1994 uh, rafters crisis happened. Um, that, that was like another huge, uh, you know, uprising that happened mostly in Havana. And a lot of people started again, building this homemade raft with inner tubes and, and all pieces of woods and whatnot, risking their life in these uh, Florida Straits, 90 miles, simply to try to start their life living in freedom. Imagine, just for a second, imagine how desperate you have to be when you are willing to risk your own life, your physical safety, dying, drowning, being eaten by sharks, simply looking at the goal of pursuing freedom, happiness, 
and choices in a different country. I was also in Cuba around this time when, when the Cuban army ordered a shooting down the brothers to the rescue civil airplanes. These were civil airplanes, little Cessnas that would fly out of the homestay area in Miami and South uh, Florida. And they would patrol the Florida Straits looking for people that were, you know, lost in homemade raft that were their life were in danger and they would alert whoever was the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Coast Guard or any other big vessel that were in the ocean and they would let them know the coordinates so they could be rescued. The Cuban government shot down these airplanes being piloted by American citizens simply because they were engaging in a humanitarian action or initiative that would not, would not, you know, support the agenda of the Communist Party or the Cuban government. I was also in Cuba when the Talkbook massacre 13th of March happened. And this happened, I, I was already working in a restaurant in the Havana Harbor at the same time that I was going to law school. And that happened literally in front of my place of employment. Uh, 27 Cubans um, got in an area in the court where there was a tugboat, kind of like decommissioned. It was not being used anymore. So they got it and they tried, they tried to flee. Uh, there were 27 people in there, several adults, a lot of children. Um, the Cuban government ordered the Cuban Coast Guard to sink that tugboat, and they did. Uh, close to 29, I think it was 29 or 31 people died, and uh, 18 of, the, of them were children. Uh, this was something that, like, shocked the, the entire mentality of people in Cuba and outside outside Cuba as well. I was also in Havana when the whole crisis with Elian Gonzalez happened. This is a child that, and, and again, for all of you in this generation, the internet is a wealth of information with historical recollections of these examples that I mentioning to you. Elian Gonzalez was also a child that was escaping in a raft with his mom. Uh, the entire family uh, sadly didn't make it, but he survived and he made it. He was rescued and made it to, uh, to the U.S. chores. And the Cuban government made like an entire circus of this crisis with end, that end up with a very sad uh, outcome. So I was in Cuba when all that happened. Like I had, I had like the insider's view of all that news uh, reels and all that news uh, cycle that was happening here in the United States. And it was around that time I was already going to law school in Havana. I was, I, I would say it was probably the second, my second or third year uh, that I started to realize that I all that I have been brainwashed with in middle high school, my 12 years of K-12 education in Cuba under a government control education system, plus the years that I have already been in law school, everything that I was learning, I, I realized that everything was a lie. I realized, for example, that the things that I was learning in my constitutional law classes were a lie. I, I, I learned that the, the whole system in the society did not support individual natural rights, did not support individual freedom. And I remember reaching a point in time where I had a conversation with my mom and she told me, you know what, you really need to push up. You really need to push to graduate, to get, you know, be done with law school, to get your diploma. Uh, but you need to find a way to leave this country. And I was just like, in shock at first. I mean, I am a single child of my mom and my dad. Imagine just, you know, having this conversation with your own mom. 
And then she, she told me something that has stayed with me for the rest of my life and it made total sense. She told me, the minute you graduate from law school, especially if you like to do you know, litigation, criminal law, constitutional law, if that's your preference, the minute that you go into a stand or a trial and you speak your mind the way that you're learning, you're gonna end up in jail with whoever is the person that you're representing. And that, that concept and that idea, especially now that I am a mom, to stay with me for the rest of my life. Because imagine how bad your daily life can be, how bad the prospect of your future can be when your own mom is choosing to be away from you, not knowing in which country you're going to be, not knowing how you're going to start your new life, in exchange to know that you're going to be safe in exchange to know that you're going to be free, in exchange to know that you're going to have an actual possibility of building a better future for your life. Now, I also want you to go back in time and think that all these that I have described to you was not always the case of Cuba. Cuba was not always a totally crumbling society under communist control. Cuba used to be free. Before the communist revolution in 1959, Cuba was called the Pearl of the Caribbean before Castro, uh, before uh, totalitarian communist control, before centralization and collectivism, Cuba's economy was compatible to countries like Ireland or Finland. Before Castro's communists destroyed Cuba, the island was governed by a constitution that was modeled after the United States constitution. So we're talking that individuals' rights were guaranteed, the notion of uh, God-given natural individuals' rights were protected. There was freedom of speech. There was freedom to choose. There was protection of choices. There was freedom of religion. There was freedom to pursue education, career, business. There was the whole idea of free will and, and informed consent were a reality between 19, before 1959. Uh, for example, um, that was a Cuba where my entrepreneurial grandparents and parents grew up. Um, my grandmother on my mom's side, she used to have a small business, it used to be like a small little store with a restaurant attached to it, nothing big in a very remote uh, town on the western side of the island, but it was that entrepreneurship mentality that helped my grandmother and my grandfather to support uh, their four children. That, that Cuba that happened in 1959 was already gone by the time I was born. It was completely obliterated by the whole concept of collectivism, communism, and, and the utter failure of socialist economy. Under Castro's authoritarian ruling, uh, when he was still alive, uh, and even now that they have like a series of puppets just doing the same thing he was doing before. We had to use, and we still use in Cuba rationing books to purchase food from the government owned and managed stores. The rations even nowadays are so meager that usually you run out of it in the first two weeks of the month. And then the other two weeks of the month, again, you know, free market always find a way, you have to survive in the black market. The black market is the way that your average Cuban person survive nowadays, over 60 years after Castro took over. In today's Cuba, for example, if you are a farmer and you have a, a cow, slaughtering your cow to use it for food means that you go 30 years to jail. Like the criminal penalty in Cuba for slaughtering a cow nowadays in 2023 is higher than when you commit murder. Why? Because 
the animal was never really your property. It always belonged. It always belonged to the to the uh, collectivist property of the government, controlled uh, by the Communist Party. Because Cuba is a, a society where constitutional protected individual right to property does not exist. It was completely erased in 1959 when Fidel Castro took over. The same example happened with fishing. Imagine an island completely surrounded by the ocean and you cannot fish. And if you do, because you know that's the little uh, company where you work, and by company, I mean a company owned by the government. If, if that's your job, you're in a fisherman town and you work in a fishery or something like that, what you fish is not yours. You cannot take it to your house to feed your family and your kids. You have to put it in the common plot of, of the government company that you work for, and it had to be sold and distributed by these centralized and chronically inefficient government agencies. So basically the state controls the food supply, the state controls the media, the state controls all firearms, the state control uh, like this system of like thought police where people are always always like in this vigilante mode, trying to snitch onto each other on who is with the government, who is with the party, and who is not. The state control these things so that people will never know freedom. Now, the ironic part of it is that while all this is happening for the average Cuban person, the party leaders still live in luxury. They live they live like the high earner income, income earners in the United States or any other civilized country in the world. The citizens are the ones suffering in poverty. And it's a poverty that is deliberate and intentionally created. And you say, why? Why would, you know, why would a country and a government that, you know, propagandize and, and sell themselves that we are, you know, to about equality and, and guaranteeing everybody's rights and to each what they need and blah, blah, blah. Why do they deliberately and intentionally keep 98% of the Cuban population, we're talking about a little bit over 11 million human beings in poverty? Why? Because when your stomach is grumbling, when you don't know what you're gonna cook for your kids that evening for dinner, your mind cannot think about freedom. Your mind cannot think about consent. Your mind will never think about choices and whether you're being uh, oppressed and living in, you know, living in, in a lack of freedom and controlled by the government. Why? Because your human, your human nation and your human instinct is to think about your grumbly belly first. And that's your priority. That's your survival instinct kicking in. Um, as part of this, I would like to encourage you all to read the book Animal Farm. I don't know how many of you have heard about it. I have quite an interesting story about it. Uh, that was the first book that I read when I left Cuba. I, yeah, at age 27, kind of like a little bit old in the game. Why? Because Animal Farm is a book that is censored and banned in Cuba. The government does not allow people to read it. The same way that the declaration of independence, the US Constitution, and many other books that talk about individual freedom and individual rights are censored or banned. I really encourage you to uh, read this book. It, it was like a surreal eye-opening experience for me when I did. Uh, it is a timeless and famous story uh, by George Well, for those of us that have might never heard about it, that illustrate this tragic phenomenon that I was telling you about, that when you're hungry, your brain cannot think about freedom and individuals' rights. Why? Because human nature can never change. 
human nature will never change. Human nature will always yearn for consent, for choices, for freedom to choose, and it will always reject coercion. Human nature will never not seek freedom over force. So I ask you today to use all these stories and my life experiences that I have shared with you uh, today about how is it to live under government control. I ask you to use those as an equalizer to compare and also appreciate the freedoms that you have today as American. It doesn't matter how old you are. Uh, the fact that you were born in a free society gives you a huge competitive advantage. I want you to think about those experiences and I want you to uh, make some internal reflection on how important it is not to take for granted the freedom to direct your own education, your own life, the freedom to make choices, educational or otherwise, when you become an adult regarding uh, work, employment, professions, you name it. I want to ask you that you do not take for granted the freedom to pursue ownership of all things great and small. Do not take free speech for granted. And I want you to hear me on this one. Uh, it's very common in today's society and I really want to make an emphasis on it. Always fight against cancel culture. Cancel culture is, culture is a gateway drug to tyranny and to the suppression of your constitutionally protected free speech. I've got news for you. The use of force to take away your individual freedoms and civil rights does not always show up in green fatigues and Catherine Russian AK-47 like it happened in the country where I was born. Believe me, tyranny and evil can knock in your door under many disguises. And that's why I do what I, I'm doing today. That's why I'm having this conversation with you all uh, today, because for me personally, it's important that five, 10, 20 years from now, it really doesn't matter how much time. It is important for me that I can be able to look at my American-born children in their eyes and tell them I fought. I did my best. I don't know if I'm going to win this battle or not, but I need my kids to know that I did my best for them not to end up living in the same totalitarian nightmare that I had to escape from. And with that, I would like to... Um, open a little bit for questions uh, that you might have. And then if you want, we can also uh, go on and see a little bit uh, about the slideshows and some of the pictures that I had to share with you today. Sure, absolutely. So guys, keep them coming. Uh, your questions, you can either email or put them in the chat right now. I already had some emailed to me. So we'll go ahead and jump right into them. Um, one of the first questions they want to know, how did your experiences in Cuba influence your perspective on government and individual rights? Oh, that's that's a very good question. Uh, it was, I mean, it was a huge contrast. contrast. I, um, I mean, I normally joke about it because we always said that in Cuba, like, you know, making fun of our own misery is like a type of survival skill. Uh, we wouldn't make it if we, you know, we wouldn't find some way to laugh about it. But it's like day at night. And I think, it's one of the things what what that makes me so keen into emphasizing why individual natural rights have to be the biggest umbrella and why the government power have to be the smallest, you know, the smallest and the minimum required by the constitution. Because the reality is that the government is the only institution that have the absolute monopoly of force. And they can use that force to infringe on your individual constitutional protected natural rights. 
And that's that's why I think in that case, we always say that it's like we come from the dark side. It's like we know it's not fun there. And that's why we're always thinking into the smaller the government and the more or the biggest the umbrella of the individual rights is, the more freedom you can guarantee for your life. That makes sense. Um, so one of our students, they wanted to know, can you describe a typical day in your life uh, before leaving Cuba and how does it compare to life in America? Okay. That's going to be an interesting one because the first thing that I can think of is public transportation, which is, by the way, managed and controlled by the government as well. Um, for example, I, I didn't I didn't live in the center of Havana. I was in, you know, in one of these working class suburbs on the eastern side of the city. So when I was going to school, uh, OK, let's talk about a daily life when I was already going to law school, the, the university campus was in the you know, in the what it would be the equivalent of the downtown of a big city uh, here in the United States. So we didn't have cars in Cuba. You cannot buy a car. The government assigns your car through your place of employment if you are, you know, committed enough and all that. So we didn't have any of that. We had to use public transportation. So my classes would have started at around 10, 10, 30 in the morning, and I would have to leave my house around five because it was long lines to get into the public transportation. And then you had to walk. And then there were no cafeterias or places to, you know, to get your food. You didn't have lockers or anything like that. You always have to carry like the huge backpack with all the books, with whatever little snack or food you could pack from home. And it would be, you know, pitch black dark at 9, 9, 10 p.m. by the time that you came back. Uh, when I was in middle school and high school, I was in... Um, what in Cuba they call becas, which is, you have to imagine that it's like a boarding school, again, where you are completely under the care of government employees and teachers. You spend there two weeks and you go home to your parents only two weekends a month. So in that case, it was just like the closest way that I have to describe it that can make sense uh, to you. It's, it's um, like if it was a military camp, you know, like a boot camp, you have your hours, this and that, and it's, you know, like a rigid schedule uh, where you have your, uh, you had your three meager meals in the cafeteria provided by the government three times a day. And then you still have to do that free work on the fields on Saturdays. And you're basically, you're basically the government teachers, groups, and the government employees in those boarding schools, they basically replace your parents and your family in your day-to-day -day life and in your education, in the process of raising you um, in those years. That was the equivalent of middle school and high school for me. Um, thank you for uh, answering that. We have a question from Andrea, and Andrea, I believe, is in Italy. Andrea, you had um, an interesting perspective, an interesting question. Go ahead and unmute to ask when you get a moment. Okay, my question was, what do you think of the American embargo? I mean, don't you think it at least played a part in the poverty and the mass migration of Cubans in the during the, the communist regime? Uh, is it the American embargo? Yeah, that's okay. what he's asking about. The American embargo is the biggest lie that the Cuban government and the Cuban Communist Party have been selling to the entire world 
for over 62 years. Um, so I, I love this question. This is a really good question. And if someone is not very like into the details of the way that I need to explain it, feel free to reach out to us with you know follow-up questions via email or all that. The first thing is that we need to think about what was the cause of the embargo? What happened? What triggered that action? What triggered that action, and I have news for you, was actually the constitutionally protected right to individual property that the United States Constitution provides to American citizens, no matter where they live and no matter where they have their business. So it was not an act like we have been led to believe for many decades that, oh, we're gonna use this to Trump Castro. No, that's a huge mistake. It started with an act of the United States Congress to protect the companies and the private property of American citizens that were in Cuba, that were illegally expropriated and stolen by Fidel Castro and the Communist Party, party without paying legally the way that they were supposed to pay. So right there, you have a clear example of how we said to live in a totalitarian centralized economy and country and how we said to live in a society where, where the law of the land and, and the constitution and the structures of government actually protect your individual property rights, whether it's a huge company or whether it's a little house in a small town in a rural given location. So that's the, the number one biggest lie that happened right there. And sadly, the entire world has fallen for that lie, like I said before, for more than 62 years. So right there, there is nothing wrong with it because the United States Congress Act, guess what? In one of the few functions that they are supposed to work, which is protecting the individual property rights of American citizens. So the whole propaganda machine switched that story in ways that is so abhorrent right now that it's, it's really disgusting. So the way that we see it nowadays, and even after that law was passed by the US Congress, it has been watered down so many times by so many political interests and agendas in the United States that the only restrictions that are applied nowadays is that um, any American or American company doing business with the Cuban government, the Cuban government has to pay in cash. It cannot be extended credit. And um, now when I think about it, as an American citizen, my first thought is like, do I want to bail out a communist dictatorship with my taxpayers' money? When we have over 62 years of history, History by multiple international organizations, the Club of Paris and many others that have ranked Cuba as one of the worst creditors in the world. Another fallacy about embargo is that um, Cuba can do business with every single country in the world. Why the obsession with the United States? If it's the if it's the, the fault of the embargo and Cuba, let's say the worst case scenario, can do business and can do, conduct businesses with the entire world, why the country doesn't have better living conditions for the population? Why not? If their business with everybody else, 
Why is why the reality of Cuba today is misery and despair and lack of freedom? Because the problem is not embargo, because the problem is the centralized economy that have destroyed the living standards of the country for over 60 years. It's an economy that is in, in completely crumbling down and because of the lack of freedom and because of the government control that is literally crushing human ingenuity. And, and this God-given right that we have, you know, to excel and to improve in life. Another example, another fallacy about the embargo, the United States is the number one trade partner of Cuba when it comes to agricultural supplies, food, medications, and medical equipment. Even though doing those transactions in cash, the United States is the number one trade partner of the Cuban government and has been like that for quite a few decades. If that's the case, again, the embargo is not the fault of the misery in Cuba. The fault, the, the person and the system to be at fault for the disaster that Cuba is nowadays in 2023 is the government control, the centralization of the economy, the lack of a free market, and the destruction of the freedom and the individual rights of the Cuban population. Another thing to wrap up the question about the embargo is that it has become the best excuse for the Cuban government to fault everything. And, and I'm telling you this, like even when I was living in there, like if there was a hurricane, it was it was the fault of the Americans and the embargo. If there was a dengue fever outbreak, it was the fault of the Americans and the embargo. I mean, nonsensical explanations like this were being put on the government control TV and speeches by government officials on a daily basis. Like you reach moments in your life that you will sit down and look at that and say, do these people think that I am brain dead? Do these people think that I cannot analyze facts, analyze uh, uh, you know, the happenings in my life and draw my own conclusions? So yeah, the whole embargo is a huge fallacy. Uh, there, is, there is a label uh, that have been uh, uh, you know, put out for many years by, uh, by economists and, and you know, political analysts that, that talk about the difference between how a centralized totalitarian economy gets destroyed and people always ends in misery, as opposed to when you have property rights and free market, people flourish because human ingenuity works to create things of value and we call them useful idiots. I mean, Che Guevara used to work, use that term. We call them useful idiots. And sadly, that's the result of this propaganda system that the Cuban government has put out to the world for so many decades that everybody thinks that the fault of everything in Cuba is the embargo when it's not. It is not, and it is time that, you know, that smart thinking people nowadays around the world that are able to access information with the level of technology that we have in 2023 start speaking out and start putting out these fallacies because it's not the reality. You know which one is the world's embargo? Do you know which one is the embargo that has destroyed Cuba for over 62 years? The one imposed by the Communist Party and by, by the totalitarian tyranny that has been in power in the government all this year. That's the real embargo that has destroyed the country and the life of over 11 million people of Cuba, 11 million Cubans. Thank you for um, ask, uh, answering that question. I mean, it's good to have primary sources like yourself who've lived it, who've experienced mm -hmm. it, and who've, for lack thereof, survived it. 
Um, you know, with the internet nowadays, people have secondhand information and pretty much anyone can post anything or say anything mm -hmm. without any primary sources behind that. So we really appreciate you answering that. And that um, brings me to my final student question. Um, one of the kids, they want to know, how do you feel about sharing your story with students? And what message would you like to convey to the younger generation about the importance of freedom and the importance of opportunity? Okay, the first part, I, I arrived at doing this that I'm doing with you guys today. Like, I mean, totally on plan. Like the first few years that I got out of Cuba and I came to the United States, I lived in Florida uh, for about five years and then, and then I moved to, to Colorado. And the first few years, I described them like living inside a washing machine. It's like your brain is constantly doing this. Imagine learning how to write a check, learning to understand the process that you work, your money get paid in a bank. That bank is no, you know, it's not going to steal your money like it happens in the banks in Cuba. And then you write a check to pay your electric bill or to pay your rent. Imagine um, learning to use a microwave. Imagine um, getting the concept of what is a laundromat. I, I mean, I'm talking about like things that you all and me that have been here in the United States for all this year pretty much take for granted because it's just life in the 21st century. So in those first years, I would never imagine that I would be doing or having the conversations that I'm having with you all today. So it took a while. I think it was after I moved to Colorado. And I remember talking to friends. I was doing, um, you know, uh, circle conversations and presentations for students in local high schools in the town where I used to live. And I remember that I was just thinking, like, it was like a very broad, vague idea of saying, well, you know what? This is just my story. And, you know, this is where I come from. And I would tell it like that. But I would never imagine if someone would have told me 20 years ago that I would be doing what I'm doing today but now I have reached a point where I have embraced the idea that as silly as my sound uh, to share with an audience that you learn how to write a check or use a microwave at age 27 the way that I see it right now is that if telling my story with you know the good the bad the ugly the funny things and the embarrassing things in between helps to open the eyes of one person if it helps to open the eyes of one John American, if it helps to open the eyes of one person like you attending middle of high school uh, and helps them to realize that what we have with the American experiment might not be perfect. I will never claim that it's perfect, but it's the best that we have in the world. If it helps to open the eyes of a young American and realize that we cannot take the rights and the freedoms that we have for granted, I think it'd be totally worth it. And that's why I end up doing what I'm doing. And uh, to wrap up the second part, why is because I come from a place and from a life where I never had what you guys have had since you were born. And that makes me appreciate it a little bit more because, because I know what happens when you don't have it. I know that it takes a while to lose it. It takes a while to lose it when we're not civically engaged, when we're not educated about our rights, when we don't know or we don't appreciate that free market and capitalism is the only moral system where human brains and human ingenuity and creation can actually flourish. And the more you create and the more you flourish, the more freedom you have. 
And like I said at, at, at the end of, of, of my remarks, it is important for me because I didn't have it when I was born. I, I decided to start my life in this country with $200 in my pocket, like I said, and my entire life in two suitcases to give my children the opportunity that I never had, to, be, to give my children the opportunity to be born in a society where they can pursue happiness. And that's the key point of it. Yeah, I mean, it's like the minute that you lose your freedoms, you're not gonna be able to do that. And once that you lose it, it's forever gone. I think it was President Reagan, the one that says that the freedom that we have in the United States is only one generation away. Like I said, it's not gonna, it, you're not gonna lose it under the army fatigues and the AK-47. You're gonna lose it little by little when you're not paying attention, when you're taking it for granted. And by the time you open your eyes and you realize that you are under a totalitarian society and dictatorship, it's gonna be too late. Look at this, at the example of Cuba. It's been 62 years and we're still fighting with the same tyranny. And we still don't know how many more generations are gonna be born in that disaster. So that's that's really important. And I think that if there is one, one take home lesson that I would like you all to think about after we finish this conversation today is precisely that, is how in your simple student day-to-day -day life, how can you engage in little actions that you know are going to be promoting free speech, are going to be promoting free markets, and are going to be promoting individual liberties? Because again, once that we lose them, it's going to be gone. And the simple way that you have to realize and that you have to realize why, how we can appreciate that, is think about the traffic pattern of Cuban rafters. They are they're risking their lives to come from Cuba north to anywhere in the American soil in the United States. Have any of you seen the pattern the other way around? Where are we seeing the Americans or the Europeans doing homemade raft to go to Cuba because life is so wonderful in there? And that's like a simple guideline. You don't need to be a political analyst. You don't need to be an economist. You don't, you don't need to be at that point in your life to realize the logic behind it. And it is the traffic, of seek, the traffic pattern of seeking freedom is out of Cuba into the United States or any other country in the world. We're not seeing Americans or Europeans risking their lives to go and live in Cuba because everything is so wonderful there. So... That is a fantastic point. Um, so thank you for simplifying this and, and thank you so much for spending time with us today. Um, guys, I appreciate everyone here. I hope everyone is healthy, happy, and safe. Malin, we will be, I will be in touch with you. Uh, before I end the meeting for all, before I shut it down, I'm going to ask everyone to unmute real quick. And can we all say thank you to Malin for taking time out of her day to come talk to you guys about her life. Thank you so much, Malin. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you so Bye. much. Bye. Thank Bye -bye. you all. It was, it was really an honor and a privilege to be able to share this time with you. I really appreciate it.